Hello and welcome to another episode of Flipping Bats and Winning Games, a baseball podcast hosted by me, Mitch, and my friend, Ursula. And, um, been a while. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, yeah. where do we even begin? <laughs> well, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, we find ourselves in kind of a sticky situation. So, all right, let me just see, like, what the date was on our last podcast <laughs> episode, just to give us some, uh, some guidelines. Okay, so, April 23rd. So, it's been exactly two months. Yeah. And lots of shit has happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, let me, let me uh, just tell you uh, to get the uh, tiny violin ready uh, because this has not been the easiest season to be a Yankee fan. Oh, yeah. Um, I would go so far as to say it has been a little bit worse to be a Mets fan. Just a tad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they do, yeah both seasons have their... Uh, have their highlights, but there's been a lot, uh, a lot of negatives going on. Yeah. Uh, New York has been, uh, troubled to say the least. (laughs) Um, I feel like you should probably go first though. (laughs) Just, just, just tell us about what's been going on with the Yankees. Well, see, the thing is, I would love to be able to tell you and our listeners about what's going on with the Yankees but in order for that to happen I would have to know what was actually going on with the Yankees and I don't think uh, even the Yankees know what's going on with the Yankees right now because I think if they did they would have tried to fix it Um, fair enough but it's you know um, it is it has been uh, less of a concern recently, but there was a stretch there where the Yankees were just... It's not even that they were bad, because, you know, they uh, like they were, but um, <laughs> there was a kind of... a kind of listless feeling about the team for a little while there. Like, it just kind of felt like they were... Uh, caught in a team-wide doldrums. Mm. And um, that's finally starting to uh, ease up. And, uh, you know, we have stuff like uh, Luke Voigt uh, last night before we record, uh, the night before we recorded this, um, announcing his return from the injured list by taking the first pitch he saw and depositing it in the bleachers. Um, And that's the kind of thing that um, I think even though the Yankees didn't win that game last night, um, there was stuff that happened in that game that is the kind of thing that I think will really uh, light a fire under their asses. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds like a real morale booster. Mm-hmm. And um, the really, if I was going to say one thing, is uh, the problem uh, with the Yankees would be 
Uh, they leave so goddamn many runners on base. Um, oh, God. I, I feel your pain. Yeah. It's one <laughs> of those things where it's it. like, it's a good problem to have and also a really bad problem to have. Um, well, I mean, in the case of the Mets, I mean, it's always people getting hit by pitches. Like, every once in a while, it'll be a walk. But, yeah, watching watching people get stranded, especially when they haven't earned it, is just demoralizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, with the, with the Yankees in particular, they have been getting a lot of guys on base. They, you know, um, one of the things with the Yankees that they have, like, prioritized on a franchise level for as long as I can remember is that they have guys who will um, work at bats and they will make the other team throw pitches and they will get their walks and they will get their pitches to hit but just you know somehow uh, particularly this season although it has been a problem to one degree or another in the past like they're just they just can't close the deal when when they get these guys on base you know mm-hmm. like the the number of times they have had the bases loaded and grounded into a double play is is just oh yeah yeah it's it's tough to watch i know yeah but uh you know it's not tough to watch is uh, Jacob deGrom, uh, like, deciding to pull a Thanos at the end of Avengers Age of Ultron and grab the Infinity Gauntlet and say, fine, I'll do it myself. Because he's basically, (sighs) at this point, like, he's batting, I think, in... um, I mean, it's a a really small sample, but... um, uh, last time I checked, he was batting over 400, and he had more RBIs really? than earned runs that he had allowed. And what has that been like to watch? So it's been... I really want to say that it's been, like, totally amazing and awesome and no consternation whatsoever. But because it's the Mets... Um, we've gotten to watch DeGrom, uh, I don't even want to say blow games, because of course he's not losing them in spirit, Mm -hmm. but there have definitely been a couple of times, like his record, uh, is more even than it should be. Of course, I don't know the stats off the top of my head. But there, there have definitely been a few games where it's just he's so close, and then the Mets just blow it for him at the last second, and mm-hmm. so he throws like eight scoreless innings, and then ends up losing. Yeah. Um. So we've had to watch that. Um. We've had to watch him doing not so well by DeGrom standards and uh, still the Mets like haven't pulled it together although the last game I saw which was the first game of a doubleheader went really well it's 
basically it was exactly what I would want to see in a DeGrom start. Mm -hmm. Like everybody pulling together, run support, like more run support than absolutely necessary. Like it wasn't like a 1-0 kind of game. (laughs) So that was nice. Um, But yeah, like objectively speaking, watching Jacob DeGrom has been just, a total joy um, if you block out everything else that's been going on with the Mets and if you block out some things that have been going on with DeGrom because as it turns out throwing triple digits all the time uh, tends to wear on your body yeah which is uh, I mean as, as amazing as he is it's always kind of going to be in the back of my mind especially since he just turned 33 yeah yeah i think that's about right yeah no it's he's 33 yeah and it's uh yeah like the the fact that the older he has gotten the harder he has thrown is just mind-boggling to me like i mean he's just been getting better at everything he's been aging like a fine wine you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and it's like been kind of an interesting thing to think about because um like when i first started following baseball and following you know prospects and all of that um one of the things that I would always hear um, when guys were talking about pitching prospects is you can't teach velocity. Like, Mm. if a guy throws hard, then a guy throws hard, and if he doesn't, then he doesn't. Um, But that started to change um, a handful of years ago uh, because the Yankees started showing this pattern of, um, you know, picking up these guys... Uh, out of college and bring him into the minors and then they were throwing you know three four miles an hour faster Mm. and there's something like clearly mechanical about it that they'd done and that's kind of percolated out through the rest of the league um but even then you know like yes i do kind of uh, yes i've had to adjust to the fact that you can teach velocity but like starting to throw 101 miles an hour when you are like in your 30s is just mind-boggling right right and i mean i like to joke around that like the hair was creating drag (laughs) that he's like aerodynamic now um but i'm just like is that a joke? <laughs> like, where is this coming from? Uh, honestly, really I've heard something. worse theories. Well, I mean, there are always worse theories out there. This is the internet after all. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, DeGrom is just, like, just amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I, he has a .5 ERA. Yeah. Like, yeah. that is... Like, even when he won the Cy Young that year and he had a 1.7 ERA, like, that alone was, like, what the fuck is happening? Like, there is something insane happening. 
But like, and I know the season isn't over, mm-hmm. but to have a 0.5 ERA when it's almost July is still something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no, like, it absolutely I don't is. Think, I don't think there's anything that he could do in his next start that would bring him above one. Uh, I, of course, you know, famous last words, right? Like, mm-hmm. hopefully I didn't just jinx the fuck out of him. But, I mean, like, he would have to go far out of his way. He would have to be, like, home run derby pitching in mm-hmm. his next start, which, of course, he's not going to do at all. I'm not jinxing it at all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the Grom excellent as usual mm-hmm. even excellenter than usual um how about the rest of the Mets well it's uh it's been interesting figuring out what's going wrong um yeah yeah um so I I'm not, I mean, you know me as, like, the casual half of this podcast, Mm -hmm. basically. So I don't think about, like, trainers and coaches and managers and stuff like that. But at a certain point, I, I would say when the, I don't know, 11th Met went on the IL, I started feeling like maybe something really needs to change like managerially yeah because i mean of course there are some injuries like for example albert almora ran like face first into an outfield wall and gave himself a concussion like that kind of stuff is different you know getting hit with a baseball stuff like that oh god kevin pilar yeah yeah, uh, basically shattered his face. Um, anyway, I don't want to get sidetracked. Um, but yeah, like, there's definitely been other stuff. I mean, hamstring strains, um, Robert Gazelman tore his right lat. Um, mm-hmm. Dellen Batansis had some sort of elbow thing going on. Like, there's just, there's been a lot of injuries that... And I'm not a, a medical doctor or anything like that. Like, I don't, I don't have that kind of experience. But I really don't think that all of these injuries had to happen. Mm-hmm. So I'm concerned. And, like, on, on some level, it is really amusing that the Mets are cursed like this. Yeah. But then, like you have to realize that these are people (laughs) Mm -hmm. and like also like this just keeps happening so so yeah the Mets have been cursed lately (laughs) uh I don't know what to make of it um maybe DeGrom is sucking out all their powers um (laughs) I mean again this is the internet conspiracies run rampant so yeah and uh speaking of conspiracies that uh are running rampant uh 
we should probably talk now uh, about the whole uh, sticky stuff controversy and uh, the... Okay, before before we talk about sticky, sticky stuff, I want to also mention, because I feel like... I don't know why exactly, maybe it's because it's a West Coast thing, but, like, Shohei Otani in New York, like, isn't really mentioned enough. Mm-hmm. Like, like, yeah, we have Jacob deGrom, and Jacob deGrom is amazing, but, like, Shohei Otani is, like, over there doing all sorts of magnificent things. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, you know, I, I... <laughs> Running in the um, kind of baseball nerd statistical circles that I do, um, everybody I know is talking about Shohei Otani all the time, constantly. Um, That's fair, and they should be. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. People, yeah, like you know, this guy's doing stuff that like is actually unprecedented. you know, because the 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 nature of the competition in the game at this point and the level of skill that everybody has, um, you know, it just really drives home that you know the there's just so much talent out there uh, that. Um, you know, that being able to hit that well is really hard. And being able to pitch that well is really hard. And being able to do both is goddamn mind-boggling. It really is. And he's also participating in the Home Run Derby, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that in itself is amazing. Um... I realize, though, that the only reason I'm not hearing about Shohei Otani constantly is because my fan- my friends are Mets fans. So, mm. DeGrom is distracting all of us. Yeah, also, and he's being pretty distracting. Of, well, there's also a ton, and I, I've touched on this in previous episodes, but, like, there's a whole... Um, like comparison of Jacob deGrom to everyone else mm-hmm. like constantly and so I think and this is a theory but I do think that deGrom and Otani are on such different wavelengths that Mets fans know that they can't compare them mm-hmm. I mean it makes sense to me like, you can talk for ages about how DeGrom is better than Cole, but DeGrom versus Otani? Yeah, they're just doing very different things. Yeah. And, I mean, it's arguable that Otani is better, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Depending on how you look at it. Like, I, I don't know what Shohei Otani's ERA is. I know it's above .5, <laughs> but, <laughs> but still, I mean... It's nothing to sneeze at. So. Yeah. Yeah. There are a bunch of other pitching stats that I don't know. (laughs) But, yeah. So. But anyway. 
Um, yeah, so spider attack, huh? Yeah. Um, that really has been, you know, kind of a... Uh, it's been really interesting seeing it develop because... Um, so before you go on, can you just... Can you maybe run down the history of this? Because I feel like this sort of came out of nowhere. Like, not not the spider tech itself, obviously. Yeah. But, like, this whole rule that we're about to get into. Like, what what is the history of this rule? When was it implemented? Because I feel like it just came out of nowhere. Um, well, it's... The thing about it is... It's not a new rule being implemented. Uh, it is a rule that previously had not been enforced, being enforced. Um, because, you know, there has always been, there's a, a, a grand tradition in baseball history of pitchers fucking with the baseball to pitch better. Um, right. And it's one of those things that has always, in one form or another, been against the rules. But the rules have to, like, kind of ca- catch up with the specific things. Um, and I didn't realize it was always against the rules. I thought it was just a post-Ray Chapman rule. Um, sort of. It was definitely, um, it, it was definitely, like, brought to a lot more prominence, um, after he got killed. Um, but... You know, it's like one of those things that is, uh, you know, uh, a distinct advantage for one side or the other. And baseball does kind of try to deal with those as much as it can. Um, But I think that um, to kind of trace what's happening now with the baseball and with the enforcement of the rules um you have to go back uh i would say to roughly 2014 ish um because that was when um we had a a uh mini half year of the pitcher at least i think it was 2014 i'm 95 sure um and then at the All-Star break in 2014 was when uh, the juiced ball uh, began to be a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And I think that it's not necessarily lost track of in the current conversation around um, spin rates and all of that. But... Um, I think that it is underappreciated the degree to which the sticky stuff controversy and the juiced ball controversy are just two sides of the same coin. Um, They are fundamentally the same controversy Um, because MLB has been messing with the baseball and that has made it so that uh, that pitchers... um, needed to both on a physical level be able to better grip the ball because the way that MLB baseballs are made 
is that they are made like incredibly um, slick and hard to grip. And then they are, before every game, rubbed down with MLB's special secret rubbing mud that is obtained. That sounds very suggestive. Go on. I know. I know. It is. (laughs) And it's one of those things that like I kind of love about MLB, but also kind of makes me think, okay, come on, guys. You can catch up with this century now. Um, (laughs) Because like my hand to God, I'm not making this up. I'm not clever enough to make this up if I wanted to. Oh, dear. Um, MLB has a special mud that they use to rub baseballs that are fresh out of the box and a lot slicker. And that special mud comes from somewhere along the Delaware River. There is one company that provides it, and it is a family secret passed down through the generations where to find the good mud to rub baseballs with. Wow. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> um. <laughs> it is, It is in both good ways and bad ways, the most baseball shit ever. That is true. Um, that is very true. But oh, when... <laughs> <laughs> when MLB started fucking with the baseballs and um, winding them tighter or changing the core inside of them or doing you know all kinds of other things um you know lowering the seams stuff like that stuff to make the ball more responsive and aerodynamic um along with that uh particularly uh the lowering of the seams made it harder for pitchers to grip and control the ball um especially in cold weather so as a direct response to the juiced ball, um, pitchers had to kind of start experimenting with um, substances that they could use to increase the grip on their hands. Because if they didn't have a grip that good, then you know they were just basically guaranteeing that they would give up a home run. Um, and so as that developed over time, that also came along with the, uh, beginning of the public release of StatCast data. And as that was coming out, uh, you know, statisticians and sabermetricians who are just statisticians, but it sounds cooler, um, (laughs) started, uh, going through all of this data and, being able to find points in the data that like coincided with stuff that was general accepted wisdom um, and was explanatory of that like particularly um, the deal with uh, somebody's spin rate when they're throwing their fastball is the harder that that ball is spinning, uh, because a fastball is thrown with backspin, um, the aerodynamics of it mean that those seams are working like 
kind of like little tiny uh, paddle wheels on ships. Um, and they are, you know, digging into the air and making the ball sink less over time. Like, there's no way to throw a ball fast enough for it to actually rise, but the faster that ball is spinning, the more uh, Magnus force, they call it. The faster it's spinning, the more Magnus force is on it, and the higher it will stay in the strike zone. And um, it turns out that hitters are really susceptible to seeing high fastballs and thinking, oh, I can hit the hell out of that, and then swinging right under it. Um, so it's, it's led to um, some innovations in uh, knowing what pitches to throw and where to throw them. But uh, what happened with the StatCast data that came out was that um, you know people started looking at this spin rate data and said, oh, the guys who have the best high fastballs have the best fastball spin rate. Um, the guys who have the sliders that break the most have the best spin rate on their sliders. Um, the guys that, you know, have the best curveballs. Again, the, the spin rate on them. And that's because everything that a baseball does is, in a lot of ways, directly connected to how much force and how much spin a pitcher is putting on the ball. It's like a knuckleball's whole thing is um, you throw a knuckleball with as little spin as possible. That's what makes it so hard. It's just natural when you are throwing something out of your hand for it to have some kind of spin on it. Um, just from the way that your hands detach from whatever you're throwing. Um, so the knuckleball is really hard to predict because it's not spinning. So it's a lot more vulnerable to uh, air currents and stuff like that that make it dance around and move unpredictably. Um, whereas if you have something like a four-seam fastball where guys are throwing it um, as hard as they can and with as much backspin as they can put on it, that ball, because it's spinning like that, is going to stabilize itself and travel in a predictable way. And the different kinds of spin that you can put on the ball determines how it's going to travel and whether it's going to, you know, break to the inside for the, pit, for the batter or break outside or, you know, start high and drop down low really quick. Um, it's all stuff like that. And so it's like, obviously spin rate isn't everything. You still have to be able to throw the ball with at least some velocity and you have to know where you're throwing it because, you know, the more a ball moves, the harder it is to locate exactly where it's going to end up. Um, but there is a real correlation between um, the, how much a ball spins and how much it moves and between how much it moves and how many guys will swing and miss at it. So with the ball uh, having lowered seams, these guys couldn't, you know, because like naturally if you're holding a baseball, you're automatically 
gonna like get a grip on the seams of the ball mm-hmm. because that's the easiest place to hold it. All right. Um, and so having lower seams on a baseball meant that pitchers needed something, you know, to help them grip it better. And so in response to MLB uh, juicing the baseball, pitchers needed to get more tack and more grip on it. And then at that same time, because of technological advancements, we learned that the amount of spin that you put on the baseball is incredibly important for how well you're going to pitch. So it's been kind of an escalating arms race since then. Um, yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like a like a back and forth kind of thing happening. A little bit, yeah. And, um, you know, MLB, like, yeah, did change the ball a few more times. Um, but you get these guys who are... You know they're lo- they're looking at all of this data, and um, it was generally somewhat assumed by the baseball public that um, spin rates were going up year over year um, the way that they were because now teams uh, knew how to track it and knew how important it was, so they would start training for it. Um, which is a factor, but it is not, I think, as much of a factor as the fact that guys now have this stuff that, like, basically glues the ball to their hands. And the longer that the ball is attached to a pitcher's fingers, uh, the longer those fingers are acting on it, and the more spin and the more force can be imparted to it. Um... And MLB, uh, you know, said that it was uh, going to make some changes with the baseball to cut back on the number of home runs this season. Which, and that's why we got a bunch of no-hitters. Yes. And <laughs> that, basically, what, what happened was that came together this year as you know the, we got the most advanced guys we're going to get with this grip with this tack on the baseball at the same time that MLB took away the the um the reactivity and the aerodynamic nature of the baseball that had made hitters able to you know kind of keep up by hitting these home runs um so by taking away uh, some of that advantage for the hitters, uh, especially at the beginning of the season when baseball is being played in colder climates and um, in colder climates, it, the ball doesn't travel as far, it's harder to grip it. Um, so that would also motivate guys to use sticky stuff more often. And you just had this perfect storm of, oh my God, hitters across all the league are looking like idiots what the hell happened um and yeah so we we um had uh official acknowledgement of the sticky stuff issue this year um but it had been um kind of percolating for a while uh because and now i get to mention 
everybody's favorite baseball podcast topic, Trevor Bauer. Um, joy of joys. <laughs> and uh, Trevor Bauer, partially because, and I will give the guy the minutest iota of credit for this, partially because he does care about the game of baseball, but I think mostly because he really fucking hated Garrett Cole when they went to college together. Um, Trevor Bauer, you know, saw... He's... And, I, you know, I will again give him credit for being one of the more um, savvy players in baseball when it comes to things like uh, the biomechanics and looking at... Um, you know, and pitch construction and knowing uh, what, you know, a minute change of your grip on a ball is going to do. Yeah, um, he's he's a really smart guy, which mm-hmm. makes it so much worse that he's such a dick. Yeah, yeah. Um, but because he is such a smart guy, he was looking at stuff like this and he was doing some experimenting off the field with sticky stuff and seeing what kind of spin rate jumps he could get, but he wasn't doing it on the field until uh, Garrett Cole got traded uh, from Pittsburgh to Houston. And when he got to the Astros, um, well, one thing, um, it was not all that he started using better sticky stuff that the Astros were providing him. That hasn't been 100% confirmed. Um, Like, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. But in addition to that, um, Cole also uh, completely revamped um, what pitches he was throwing, how often he was throwing them. Um, Pittsburgh had a very specific organizational philosophy that focused on sinking fastballs. And Garrett Cole's sinker is not that good. But, you know, because the pitching coach in Pittsburgh had a philosophy, he wanted Cole to throw that sinker as much as possible. So, in addition to coming to a new team that, um, shall we say, has proven itself willing to get any advantage they can get, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) coming to that team and revamping his arsenal meant that Cole went from, oh, you know, he's really promising, but the results aren't there, to, oh, shit, he's finally becoming what we thought he might become. Um, And he, you know, became one of the best pitchers in baseball. Um, And uh, when, around when that happened, um, that real renaissance in Houston, uh, Trevor Bauer kind of passively aggressive, passive-aggressively tweeted about how oh you know your team could really make some amazing trade deals if you knew that magically when you acquired a pitcher his spin rate would go up by four or five hundred rpm um you know like clearly an absolute direct subtweet i know that that's a contradiction in terms but it was a direct subtweet of garrett cole and the astros and then Trevor Bauer, um, after that, mostly blew back on him because it was before 
uh, a lot of the Astros information came out and people realized, you know, just how far the Astros would go to get it. I mean, it probably also just didn't help that he's not particularly likable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. like, people just weren't inclined to be on his side. Yeah, that didn't do him any favors. But, um, what he did was he made a comment. I don't remember if it was on Twitter or to a reporter. Um, but he made some comment, and I don't remember the specifics, uh, that was along the lines of, uh, pay attention to my first inning tomorrow. I'm going to do an experiment. And um, Bauer went out there, and uh, in his first inning in that game, um, had spin rates that were up four or 500 RPM from his season average, and that went and that went back down after that when he stopped using the sticky stuff. Um, so he, you know, he didn't say, "Hey, I'm going to use sticky stuff," because then obviously you're asking for the other team to, you know, catch out on that and tell the umpires. Um, but he implicitly said it, and he did it, um, and it, you know, it did show that, like. Yes, this will show up in the majors, and this is what doing that will do. Um, but because that was still in the juiced ball era, it's not an era, but like during, it was during the juiced ball controversy, um, people felt that to a degree, uh, oh, to a degree, people just didn't really want to talk about it. And then um, also they felt that uh, you know, even if pitchers are, you know, um, getting a bit of an advantage from this, you know, they need to keep up with all these home runs. Um, and there is, you know, a lot of uh, position players will say that they want um, pitchers to at least be using some kind of sticky, uh, sticky substance. Um, particularly uh, the one that is that people always go to is... Um, Rosin, which MLB does provide. There's a rosin bag on every mound. Um, and if you have some rosin on your fingers and then you touch uh, the sunscreen on your arm, uh, rosin and sunscreen gets, like, pretty sticky and makes it a lot easier to hold a baseball. But it's, like, with sunscreen and rosin, that's not so much a performance-enhancing grip augmentation as it is the kind of grip augmentation that makes um, hitters feel safer in the batter's box because they know that the pitcher will have a better idea of where the ball is going. Um, like, that's another thing that makes it so complicated that, that it is a matter of degrees. And um, MLB's enforcement of it is not. Um, which I think mm. is part of the reason that people are so mad about it. Um, but yeah, over time, you know, things got better up to, um, spider tack, which was invented, uh, by a, uh, bodybuilding strongman who also got a, uh, chemistry degree and, um, wanted to have the best possible substance for a strongman competition where these guys pick up these 300-pound 
boulders, basically. And I don't know what they do with them. It's like picking them up and showing how strong they are by picking up 300-pound boulders. Um, don't they, like, walk a certain distance with them or something like that? I think it's that. Yeah. Um, but, I don't know if it's a race. <laughs> yeah. I think it's probably a race. Anyway. <laughs> um, but so he, you know, developed this thing that is like the stickiest thing on the planet, um, which, you know, you kind of want if you're picking up something 300 pounds and you don't want to drop it. Um, but, you know, so. some baseball player somewhere uh, got a hold of it and started using it. And it will really, you know, like they've um, there have been uh, MLB like beat reporters who have gone, um, you know, into like pitching and batting cages and, you know, thrown without spider tack and then thrown with it. And they see, you know, like, even with them not being super trained in how to use it, they would see, like, a 400, 500 RPM jump in the balls that they were throwing. Right. So it's this kind of perfect storm of deader baseballs plus wider acceptance of guys using sticky stuff plus more effective sticky stuff that you know coalesced into this big shitstorm and then MLB um, was so worried about it that they decided that rather they said at the beginning of the season that they were going to be collecting data about sticky stuff and they were going to be um, you know, doing all kinds of other stuff. But they said at the beginning of the season they weren't going to be doing any um, enforcement yet. But they were going to mm-hmm. take data from this year to decide what enforcement they would do next year. Um, and then we had uh, seven no-hitters in a month when the record <laughs> for an entire goddamn season is eight. Um, and that, I think, really lit a fire under MLB's ass. And now they have decided to do mid-season enforcement. And, um, it is both controversial because it is, um, you know, pretty harsh enforcement. They want to make it clear that they are going to enforce this rule. Um... But I think the main thing that has so many um, players' hackles raised is the the mid-season um, routine-busting nature of it. Um, because, you know, we'll, we've already seen Tyler Glasnow come out and say um, that because he stopped using sticky stuff, he had to hold the ball differently. And in holding the ball differently... Um, he was having to exert a lot more force on it with his fingers. And Mm. the way that the kinetic chain of, you know, transmitting this force through a pitcher's body and into the baseball works is, um, as everybody who follows baseball knows, uh, the ulnar collateral ligament is a very important part of that chain um, because that is the ligament that if you tear that 
uh, the Tommy John doctors are coming. And mm-hmm. Joey Lucchese. <laughs> yep. And what happens is, um, and this is actually a really uh, kind of interesting thing that has stuck with me ever since I learned it. Um, humans don't have muscles in our fingers. We only have like tendons and ligaments in our fingers and all of the muscle work for our fingers happens in our forearms. That's where the, the muscles that you know, move your fingers actually are. So when these guys um, like Glasnow are having to grip the ball harder than the muscles in their forearms are having to work that much harder and with the, when the muscles in their forearms get tired, those muscles can't accept as much of the force as they normally would, which would protect the UCL. So you, that's, what you, that's how you get Tiger Glasnow going out there and saying, hey, because I made this change, my arm broke and a bunch of other guys' arms are going to break when they make this change. And I, you know, as much as I do on a spiritual and philosophical level want MLB to have more of a level playing field because it isn't really that fun after a point to watch a bunch of pitchers duels. You know, you want Mm. variety. You want spice in the sport. And on a theoretical level, I am okay with MLB doing something about the performance-enhancing grips, um, like spider tack, like, you know, this other stuff that is designed specifically to heighten a guy's grip. But I think it is really, really shitty of MLB to do this mid-season when one of the defining things that I know about baseball players from everything that I've read and learned about them is that they are to an almost pathological degree creatures of habit and if you are disrupting their routines if you're disrupting their habits then you are throwing a wrench in the works and making it a lot more likely that they're going to fuck something up and I just think that it is uh, fundamentally unfair of MLB to its players to they're not changing the rules in the middle of the season but they're changing the rule enforcement in the middle of the season and I just think that once you have established a precedent of how you're going to enforce the rules this season you have to stick with that for the whole season I mean I I think that's only fair and I think honestly I think that you have thought this out significantly more than (laughs) anyone who's actually in charge has like it i mean i can't imagine a commissioner for example hearing that there's this like chain reaction from pitcher to ball and being like you know what sucks for them (laughs) (laughs) like i mean it really does seem, and 
so it already seemed like uh, like these changes were kind of fly by night. Mm-hmm. And, like, we could see, you know, for example, with the no-hitters, somebody who is casual, who's not necessarily paying attention to spin rate or any other kind of saber metrics, like, somebody is going to see a bunch of no-hitters header- and think these balls have been dejuiced. Mm-hmm. And that's all fans are going to think, you know, there's something different about the balls. Like, they made them, I don't know, less aerodynamic or heavier. or I, I don't know. Something I think the main thing that they did was make them less bouncy. Mm. No, that makes sense. <laughs> but, yeah, like, so... Uh, so, yeah. What was I saying? Um, yeah, okay. So, it seems like the people in charge, the head honchos. I don't know how much Rob Manfred has to do with this. I know he's like the face of mm-hmm. this whole fiasco. Yeah. Um, but it really does seem like whoever's in charge was only thinking about the balls. Mm-hmm. And nothing else. Like watching baseball... I don't want to say disintegrate. I'm not trying to be that dramatic. Um, but watching it spiral mm-hmm. uh, has been quite something. Yeah. And uh, uh, watching rules suddenly get enforced out of goddamn nowhere has been something. Yeah. And it, I just, I cannot imagine especially after Tyler Glasnow is his injury Mm -hmm. like I can't imagine sitting back and being like okay um, maybe we just need to let 2021 play out the way it was playing out Yeah, and maybe we look at this year and we're like you know what we fucked up like let's rejuice the balls let's I don't know let everybody stick gum on their hands (laughs) like uh, I mean I don't know it just it doesn't seem like the right thing to do to let all these athletes train the way they train and the way they've been training Mm -hmm. and then just suddenly switch it up on them and then expect them to just totally be fine with it both physically and mentally yeah so and uh yeah, and the the mental side in particular um, will will bring us to uh, the most direct impetus for us uh, recording this podcast on the day that we are recording it. Yes, um, because an emergency podcast. Yes, we are. <laughs> yeah, we are having a Max Scherzer took off his belt emergency podcast. Yes. Uh, <sighs> so. Um, did you see it live? I did not see it live. Um, Okay, I didn't see it live either. And I can't believe that I was watching the Mets have a shitty game (laughs) and not watching Joe Girardi purposely antagonize Max Scherzer. (laughs) Oh, man. Like, talk about time wasted. Like, I should have been watching that. 
like this is something that's going on in my division, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like I, I should be sitting back. Like it's one of those like um like I don't know if you've seen those memes where it's like boomers and Gen Zers like oh, yeah. watching millennials battle. Yeah. <laughs> like like that's kind of what it felt like. Mhm. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, yeah, the play-by-play. Um, I don't even know what inning this was. Uh, it was, I believe, the end of the fifth inning. Um, so what happened was um, Scherzer got checked uh, for sticky stuff earlier in the game and was, you know, kind of a little bit annoyed about that, but it wasn't oh, anything. Kind of a little bit annoying. Yeah, it wasn't anything that notable. Um, but then, um, in the, I, yeah, in the fifth inning, um, he started, uh, touching his hat and rubbing his hand in his hair in a way that he hadn't been for the rest of the game. And, uh, that apparently was what prompted, uh, Joe Girardi to be like, hey, take another look at this guy. Mm. And, um, and so, uh, you know, the Scherzer was clearly really pissed about, uh, Girardi doing that and, you know, like, uh, like tossed off his hat, tossed off his glove, uh, undid his belt, like really thought that he was going to start pulling his pants down on the baseball field. Right. Um, Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the umpires checked him, didn't see anything, and, uh, went back to pitching, and, uh, when Scherzer, uh, finished the inning, I think he struck out the last batter, uh, he just gave Joe Girardi a good long stare down as he was walking off the mound, mm-hmm. um, and <laughs> that was, the, and that was when Joe Girardi kind of lost his shit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I mean, <sighs> Joe Girardi is too old for this shit. <laughs> like, yeah, he is. I mean, Max Scherzer's no spring chicken, but like, come on. What does he think he's going to accomplish? <laughs> like, well, oh. now that actually is uh, an interesting thing about this, um, because... I saw the just raw game broadcast video um, and there was a complicating factor that I only saw when it was pointed out um, on the, uh, the John boy uh, breakdown of the clusterfuck, um, which was that uh, the Washington Nationals hitting coach, uh, Kevin Long, uh, who used to be the, uh, the Mets hitting coach and used to be notably the Yankees hitting coach when Girardi was managing, um, Kevin Long was kind of jawing at Girardi uh, from the dugout. And if you look at it, um, and break it down like John Boyd did in his video, um, Girardi was actually yelling at Kevin Long and not at Scherzer 
Although, like, without that kind of, like, point-by-point analysis of it, it's a lot easier. It looks a lot more like he's yelling at Scherzer. Um, but there was the, uh, the Kevin Long of it all that complicated things. I see. Um, I mean, there, it's, you know, there's, there's just so many moving parts here. Yeah. Like there's, there's what happened between them. There's what happened between uh, Girardi and Long. There's what's happening in general. And there's my cat who won't shut the hell up. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's just, there's a lot going on. And it's, I feel like everything is just like coming to a head. And that that was the head, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like it, it was just, I mean, Joe Girardi pretty clearly abused his power, at least from my perspective. And your silence leads me to believe that you might disagree. Well, I don't know that I would I would necessarily um, say that he abused his power. Like, he was, you know, clearly kind of a dick about things. And we did, you know, it has to be... Um, it, it, it does have to be kind of like stated in the abstract that what we are talking about here is a 56-year-old man throwing a temper tantrum. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, when, when you do see the video of Scherzer um, pitching and like grabbing his hat and you know, running his hand through his hair, like... I think that Girardi was overzealous in asking the umpires to actually check Scherzer in the middle of an inning. Um, But, you know, if a guy is changing his pattern on the mound and that pattern involves touching things that he wasn't touching before, I don't think it's irrational to look at that and wonder... Is he loading up his hands with something? Um, so I, I think that Girardi could have handled this a hell of a lot better in a lot of ways. But the initial impetus of it, I'm not that upset about. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think... I think that maybe I focused more on the after effects like mm-hmm. their interactions yeah and it just it seems pretty ridiculous all around mm-hmm. <laughs> um and ultimately on I'm on Scherzer's side mostly because he is a pitcher <laughs> and he is being disrupted by this on a large and small scale mm-hmm and it's pretty clear to me that um, managers can do this to disrupt players. Yeah. So it's either, like, it has already happened or it is going to happen. So, mm-hmm. like, of course this isn't going to be the last time that something like this occurs. 
now that everybody in the league knows that they can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's going to be interesting to see. It is, yeah. And I, I really hope um, that we do not see a, a spate of injuries developing from this. Um, because I am, like, legitimately worried after what um, Glasnow said, and I read um, some articles uh, that interviewed people who are um, experts in biomechanics and that kind of, like, kinetic chain of force that goes up through the body. Like, there was, uh, yeah, it was... um, uh, and also, they also interviewed in the article I read um, a guy who's done a bunch of uh, Tommy John surgeries, and um, the the surgeon in particular said that he absolutely expects um, a bunch of guys to fuck their arms up with this, and I just really think that it is uh, it is shitty of MLB um, to do this, you know, mid season. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I mean, I probably wouldn't have been thrilled about it if they had said at the very beginning of the season that this was what was going to happen. But it would have been easier to deal with if it weren't just randomly happening. Because it's jarring to them. It's jarring to us. It's not helping Mm -hmm. (laughs) like we're already in this situation where like fans are complaining about various changes not just this Mm -hmm. but like there's just it seems like everything every time something happens it makes the game worse in some way yeah somebody whether it's the players or the fans or both. So, yeah. like, we in general are sort of running out of patience here with Manfred in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, it, that. this has really, um, I mean, Manfred's reign uh, in general um, has really driven home that... Um, you know, there's this kind of myth of the commissioner who cares about the health of baseball. Um, and, you know, for so long we had uh, commissioners who, um, you know, at least appeared as if they cared about the health of baseball. Um, but it is... Um, the, the the reign of Manfred in particular is driving home that the commissioner doesn't work for the league. He doesn't work for the good of baseball as a whole. Um, he is selected and he works for the ownership class in MLB and uh, only for them. Um, and because MLB owners only care about making money, um, that means that the commissioner only cares about making sure that teams are making money. And, um, you know, if I had my way, what we would do is uh, you would 
return baseball's commissionership uh, from a single office held by a single guy uh, to a three-person uh, commissioner's committee where you have one guy who is picked by the owners, you have one guy who is picked by the players, and then the third guy is somebody that the first two guys uh, can mutually agree that they both want on the commission um, to be a swing vote because, you know, the, the office of the commissioner is somewhat restricted by the collective bargaining agreement in what they can and cannot do uh, to affect the game. But that collective bargaining agreement is the only thing that restricts the commissioner's office. And collective bargaining agreements don't uh, happen quickly. And um, in MLB's case, in particular, uh, they don't happen particularly amicably. And relying on uh, collective bargaining uh, to make sure that MLB does things right is just not going to work. So we need something to happen that makes it so the commissioner will actually care about something other than owners making money. Yeah. I mean, couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> I mean, so speaking of money, have you heard about MLB's crypto stuff happening? In in the sense that I know that they tweeted some weird baseball moon picture yesterday, and then today mm. that is apparently about some kind of cryptocurrency thing. And th this, this just feels to me like uh, the same kind of thing that has resulted in seeing... Uh, DraftKings um, advertising at stadiums and seeing this kind of like um, seeing gambling creeping back into MLB um, and it's yeah it's I, I don't like it I just really don't like it it, um, just, it comes across as so sleazy exactly like I, I don't like, don't they have enough money? <laughs> I, I mean, I know that as somebody who's part of the 99%, I can't really say things like that. But, I, like, I know that their goal is to get all the money that ever existed in every corner of every country, of every planet. I get it. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. like... Come on. Like, j are they trying to chase away all the fans? I I don't know. It seems like they might be, or it, or I don't know. I, I, I don't think that they are actively acting maliciously. Um, I don't, I don't think so either. I just think that they're extremely misguided. And extremely short-sighted. Yes, yes. And I, I don't know who is researching their ideas, if anyone. I don't know who thought this would be a good idea and why. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. And the fact that this is coming after 
this whole Scherzer Girardi fiasco is just it, it's it it really is just a spiral, you know? Like I know I know that they have nothing to do with each other. Mm-hmm. But just watching MLB uh, for lack of a better term, swing and miss <laughs> like all these times it's just like I, I just I want some stability in my baseball life and I feel like I can't get any mm-hmm. so and I mean the Mets are just getting injured left and right so and I know that's nobody's fault well no, yeah. nobody that high up yep so but yeah I just just settle down MLB please <laughs> yep I agree yes so do you have anything else <laughs> uh no just uh please for the love of god people who pull the levers at MLB just think that's all please just think right think talk it out then act yeah and yep. think for longer than you have to <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, on that note of just exhausting, exhaustedly begging MLB to just think about what they're doing, uh, this has been Flipping Bats and Winning Games. Uh, you can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. Uh, you can find us in most places you can find podcasts. You can find us on Twitter at FBD, F, hmm, <laughs> FBWG Podcast at gmail.com um, is our email address. And as I was saying, you can find us on Twitter at FBWG Podcast. Um, it's been a while since we signed off. So, yeah. uh, so, so yeah. cut us some slack, please. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm going to edit out parts of that, but I'm not going to edit out all of it so that people know, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> We're rusty. Yeah. But uh, yes. This has been Flipping Bats and Winning Games, and uh, take care of yourselves, everybody. All right. Take care.